Hey, welcome to another episode. Today, I'm talking to Ashley Skulak, who is the founder of Canine Resistance Training, which is kind of like weightlifting for dogs, right? It's it's um, it's all of that good stuff that we've kind of come to. It's like got really popular with people, hasn't it? You know, doing weightlifting, even you know, not just um, like jacked bodybuilders, but just for general fitness. And this is like a message that Ashley is trying to take to the dog world too, and very successfully. All of the people you hear talking about this online, oftentimes you, well, for me at least, when I've, I've been listening to people talk about it, and then I kind of dig deeper and I realize it all kind of comes back to Ashley and her initial book, which is Canine Resistance Training, but then also her online programs, et cetera, et cetera. Ashley's really like one of the OGs on this issue. So uh, it's really cool to get an opportunity to talk to her and I can't wait to get started. And very topically, actually, the sponsor for this podcast is N2N Canine Mills. Uh, they have uh, they create um, slap mills and carpet mills here in the UK. So if you do want to increase your dog's fitness, this is a fantastic place to start. And it's also a good time of year as well because they're running a lot of sales at the moment. And there is a code you can use, which is NB10 as a listener of this podcast. So don't forget to check them out. That's N, like the letter N, the number two, the letter N, Canine Mills. They're on Instagram. They have a website, etc. Don't forget to use the code, which is MB10. All right, let's get started. Hey, Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to great to be here and finally get to connect. No, I'm really excited about it because I've been listening to your podcast with Daniel and that kind of led me down a rabbit hole. And then I also went down a rabbit hole of GRC recently. Yeah. And I feel like all roads have led to your materials because I feel like a lot of um, like you're stuck because there's been quite limited resources in this area. Right. So when you started putting stuff out, it kind of became like the Bible of canine fitness stuff <laughs> well i i appreciate the compliment i don't know if i'd call it the bible i'm like kind of like i said to you just before we jumped on i'm extremely grateful to um be able to use this as an avenue for education uh, for dog owners for fitness um and believe it or not it touches people in their own lifestyle so that's sort of been a byproduct of of what i've done and we can talk about that more in depth but uh no it's been great it's been great so yeah i heard you say that on a podcast because it sounded like I remember when you were talking about your initial journey getting into the weight pool and stuff like that. And I think you said that at the time you weren't doing weightlifting yourself. No. Is that right? <laughs> That's and correct. And then you ended up doing... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you ended up doing... Uh, doing like more like powerlifting stuff as well, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, to give you, I think for anyone listening, right, to give you a little bit of background might be helpful uh, to figure out how I got into this. But I was just telling you, Nick, that this is... Dogs are not my primary... Um, role, uh, which is, you know, it's been a, a blessing and a curse. Um, it's, it's a passion project that eventually turned into something bigger than I anticipated, but I am actually a, an associate professor, um, in the school of nursing here at the university of new England in Maine. And, um, uh, most recently I'm now an administrator. So in a, of the director of our simulation center. Um, so I work with a ton of different health professions and that's sort of my background in nursing and all of that is really, I'm into like health and fitness and well-being. Um, and so just in my studies with that, and then like my personal life, I have two pities. Um, and so really working with them, everything culminated into like, all right, so I definitely have an interest in health and fitness, um, both in people and dogs. And so when I had um, my female pit, who's now 10, 10 and a half, um, and then I have a a younger American bully. He's six years old now. Um, but when I had Maya, when she was a year old, um, started having like signs of lameness and I took her to specialist upon specialist. And we finally get this diagnosis of osteoarthritis of her elbows for a one-year-old. Um, and it was devastating. They said by the age of five, she wouldn't be able to walk. Um, and I was like, absolutely not. It's not going to happen. And so I started really connecting with a lot of dog folks. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the United States. So I'm not local to Maine. Um, I've been here for about five or six years now. So, um, at the time I was practicing down South. Um, and I ended up connecting with a lot of people who do competitive weight pull. 
And I had zero resources, nothing. There was no one around me that said, this is how you do it. This is how it's supposed to be done for the well-being and, and maintaining the integrity of the dog's health. It was just, oh, we'll slap a car tire on the dog and just go. And you're like, okay, that, that seems reasonable, I guess. Um, and so I started doing that, you know, and it, I've learned through my own trial and error. Um, I've been very fortunate that ha I've had a, she's been rock steady um, and she took to it and we competed many, many times. I started a local weight pool club um, in that area down there um, and we had much success with it. She's like I said, 10 and a half and she's still going. So um, when I started putting together all my research and working with the specialist that I did, I started getting all the pieces of like, okay, you know, stretching's important, um, warming up and cooling down. And like, how do you actually program and teach people how to do this who are completely novice like myself? And so that's what ended up with the canine resistance training programs um, that are out now. Well, I always think that oftentimes like the best innovation or like, you know, I just, I feel like a lot sometimes comes when people connect to things. And I imagine your background in nursing and yes. stuff like that probably helps with and also just your general interest in fitness and stuff like that probably helps tremendously bring a lot of that knowledge it, across. Oh, it definitely does. It definitely right? does. And as I kind of alluded to you earlier, it I think what happens, you know, people get into this stuff really for their own dogs and they're like, I really want to do, I'm in this GRC club and I want to get into a weight pull trial, but where do I get started? How do I begin? And so when they learn the layout of you know, how do you structure sessions? What are they, what do they look like? What does your weekly routine look like? How do we build a dog up? Who's never done something like this? It sort of evokes, um, a certain amount of confidence in the handler, uh, or the dog owner. And it genuinely breeds owners who then become like, wow, I want to do this stuff for me. Like I know how it helps my dog. And then you start to see it bleed into other avenues. Um, I've had many owners reach out and they're like, thanks to this program, you know, like when I'm out there with my dog, it's turned into a form of meditation, which is super helpful for me. It, you know, it got me into the gym, seeing the benefits of having something fulfilling to their life for the dog. Um, so it's been, it's been crazy, but it definitely helps to have that your own personal interest in it. Um, as I was developing these programs. So. Oh, nice. And you're, you're also into sports, right? Like you, you did a little Mondeo ring, right? I did for that is actually, so I had, um, my, he just passed away my older, my chase, I mean, older dog, but Jax was, uh, my 80 pound, like pit boxer mix that I got right around the time that I got Maya, the one who's into weight pull and Jax and I did stints in Mondio. Um, we were heading for a, a brevet, but it didn't really quite happen, but we did a ton of the training. Um, and for a rescue dog, he did pretty darn well. Uh, but it was fun. Oh, the bite nice. sports are always super fun. Yeah. Because I think that one area where people will have a lot of interest in this is people that are already doing sports and they're looking for, you know, how can I make my dog better prepared? Also, like oftentimes injuries are common in these sports, right? And I imagine that doing something like this will also allow like some injury prevention, right? Yeah, I would think. Absolutely. Um, I think people have, it's getting... Um, less now, which is great. But I think people have gotten so used to thinking that, oh, I can only do this type of training, meaning resistance training, if I'm competing in weight pull. And we're starting to see that, that everything shift away from that mentality where it's now they're recognizing that strength and conditioning um, and resistance training, right? It's good for all canine athletes. Um, I just had somebody reach out who actually does herding classes. And she was like, I'd really love to do a webinar for my club so that they can understand how this will help. Um, you know, I don't have statistics on me, but I do know that a lot of injuries are super common with dogs who are pivoting, turning, rotating. So agility, um, that's a group that we see a ton of ACL injuries um, and a lot of prevention can be done around that. So I see this work, resistance work, whatever it looks like, you don't have to take it to an elite level. You don't have to be competitive. You don't have to get on a track and pull 17, 1800 pounds on, on a cart. But the the day-to-day -day training of resistance work can actually benefit. It's a wonderful cross-training modality. So what kind of benefits do you see in the sports dogs? So especially like, you know, obviously we mentioned a little bit there in injury prevention, but what kind of what kind of differences do you actually see in the ones that do do this versus the ones that don't? Yes. Yeah, so I'm sorry, it's going to be super long winded because I get so into That's the good. benefits of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So, you know, one of the first things, and it's it's pretty easy to say this, but it is just an additional venue for dogs and handlers to bond. That's the first thing. So regardless, I'm going to say, you know, herding dogs or agility dogs, doing the sport, dock diving, doing the actual sport is bonding. The training and the day-to-day work that goes into it and the prep work is also time to bond. So you know, uh, participating in the resistance training is yet another reason. It's just, it's a different way to see your dog um, in a light that you're not used to get up in a found profound appreciation for what they are capable of truly aside from the chosen sport that you do. So I think first and foremost, the low hanging fruit is just, it's a wonderful bonding opportunity. You then start to see dogs, um, handlers start to be able to read their dogs a little bit more, have an understanding of, okay, we are mentally at the point where my dog wants to quit and I don't want that to happen. So we're going to end whatever it is that we're doing and end on positive notes. You start to see the communication between the handler and the dog and the advocacy strengthen um, quite a bit with that. And I think most of that comes from when you are doing these resistance sessions, um, you really have to be in tune with your dog. You really, really have to know when they are at the point of a mental break, like I need to quit, I'm done. Um, or like, okay, we could push you a little bit more. And that takes that takes a lot of intuition on the handler's part. So that's something that we practice a ton. It's something that I educate on and really, really being mindful. So I, you know, that is helpful with any dog sport. Um, so I see that. Of course, then you look at the fitness benefits, right? So you have the muscle, um, you know, hypertrophy or the development of the muscles that may not have been there, or maybe they needed expanded upon. A lot of times for the dogs who do competitive weight pull, you start to see really strong glutes and hamstrings and and all of the back end work. So dogs who are getting older come to me a lot and say like, we're losing muscle mass. We need to, you know, the vet wants us to put on some muscle mass. So this is usually what they'll, they'll go to. They'll want to do um, this type of activity to build that. You also see the cardiovascular improvement, the endurance um, develops. So again, if you are doing dock diving where you need more of the explosive muscles or you have dogs who are um, lure coursing, I've had that too. So it's just, you have the physical attributes as well. So it's, there are so many benefits to this training that I can't talk about them enough. <laughs> well, that's actually, I'm really glad you brought up dock diving because that was what was going through my head was like, do you also adjust for sports? So for example, what you might need for like a dock diving dog might be different to what you maybe would want for like canny, like long distance canny cross. Yeah. Is that right? Or? No, that's a, it's a great question. And so the way that I had developed over the years, the programming, and when I say that, you know, we have the canine resistance training programs, and in theory, there are three. And the entry level, which is probably the most popular, is what I call the building blocks. And that is really aimed at taking a novice dog who has had zero experience in a harness with uh, dragging any sort of weight or resistance. And it is about roughly a 12 week program designed to just get a dog, a solid foundation, right? Acclimation to the harness, getting used to sounds. And then it's teaching the handler, the things such as advocacy that I was talking about, what signs do you learn to recognize? Um, and how do you get them to push beyond their mental limitations? Not so much physical, because that comes as you continue to do your sessions, once and most owners get through that and they're like, this stuff is awesome. And that's actually where they'll stay. They will do that foundational work in all of their um, months moving forward, years moving forward. They always seem to go back to that. On occasion, you do have the, um, the, the dog and the dog owner and the team that is like, okay, this is my chosen sport. I like Mondio or I like... Um, dock diving, lure coursing, whatever it is, but I want to use this as the cross training. And so when you have dogs like that who come to me, I put them into the next tier, which is more aimed at improving the cardiovascular endurance, right? So it's a little bit more work on the dog's part. It's teaching them the programming is, is etched in a way that's pushing them ever so slightly past their mental, um, what they interpret to be their mental limitations. And we start to see them gain like oh i can do this or the owner recognizes wow you're capable of way more than i thought so it just continues to deepen um, the advocacy increases the cardiovascular endurance and improves the overall stamina of the dog so i don't necessarily have specific programming where like oh you do lure coursing so you need to do this it it all can be made according to whatever the dog needs, if that makes sense. And so there is flexibility within the program. If the owner goes, you know what, I only have time to commit to two days a week and not three. 
then we make those adjustments. And, you know, the group that I have on Facebook, it's a, a private group for those that actually follow. And I'm on there pretty fluently along with some of the other uh, coaches that work with me and they help guide and provide that mentorship. Um, so it's been really great. Oh, nice. You know, and I realized as well, like we've gone off, we've kind of like shot off like a bullet and we haven't really spoken about like <laughs> what is canine resistance training. Yeah. No, <laughs> so that's maybe, okay. Maybe you can give us an idea for people that have never come across this topic before. Like what is it that we're talking about here? Like what kind of things go under that umbrella? Sure. So um, canine resistance training uh, was a program that I had started putting out, I think, in early 2017, but I had been doing it, you know, years before it became really a thing. Um, and it really is a general um, sort of all inclusive modality of resistance training. And it is I think the emphasis is on the the old structure of what most people call drag work. So you do need a custom fit harness for your dog that allows the dog to safely pull resistance weight. Um, typically in the past, for those that have never seen it, it tends to be more of like old school, like heavy toe chains, anything that can add resistance to dogs. Um, and through the work that I've done, I've collaborated with, you know, canine physiotherapists or physical therapists. I've worked with um, orthopedic teams and we've gone through and I actually have quite a few vet techs and assistants um, that do the programming. And so it's been fully vetted, if you will, um, to be a, a pretty solid foundational program to do it safely um, instead of doing the old traditional ways of drag work where it's just we throw whatever we can to provide and, and bog the dog down, you know, and so it's been more of a, I don't want to say a scientific, but it's a more well thought out methodology um, to maintain the safety and integrity of the dog. So like I said, it's programs. So there are different levels for which whatever experience the dog and the dog owner have, they can enter at any point. Most generally, it tends to be our building blocks. Um, and that for anyone who's listening and you're like, I still want some more clarity and I have no idea what she's talking about, you can totally visit um, my website. So it's www.canineresistancetraining.com. And there's a full like, what is CRT? What's it about? And it has all the tabs that can take you to anything that you need. And I know you'll probably do that at the end, but just in case anyone wants to follow along. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Yeah. So like, um, also, because I've been going down the GRC rabbit hole recently, I wonder if included in your programs, you ever cover some of the other stuff that maybe isn't so much resistance training, like spring poles, treadmills, that kind of stuff, or do you kind of just strictly focus on the drag work and yeah. So, um, it's a great question. I actually mainly focus on the resistance training, right? And I, I don't look at it from the sport realm, but rather the improving overall well-being. It can be prepping you for sport. But what I have found over the years that the owners that tend to come to me, not all of them want to do sport. And that sort of helped me with my decision to go, okay, I'm not really going to focus what I'm the education that I'm able to provide as a platform and a, a window to sport for everyone, but rather this could be good for the shelter dogs. This could be good for dogs who, if they only get an hour to come out of their kennel, what is going to fulfill them the most? What is going to provide, you know, the mental work, the strength, the, it, sort of that overall workout. So it was really aimed at um, focusing on just resistance training in that way. Now you mentioned like slap mills and the one thing I don't use slap mills per se, I have, um, you know, but it's not so much speed that I'm looking for. It's more, how do I provide resistance? So I actually like carpet mills. Um, and that's something in the dead of winter, if you're not able to get outside and do, I will recommend carpet mills. I don't necessarily focus on the programming of that. Um, as I do, what does your weight and distance look like every week to week so that we build succession and build success with you and your dog. So I tend to just stay in my little corner and niche of the world. Yeah, no, that's yeah. fair enough. It's yeah. just so earlier on, you mentioned how you can build up cardiovascular with drag work. How would that look? Because I think in my head, when I think of cardiovascular, I think of the slap mills and that kind of stuff. So how would it work with resistance training? Sure. Um, and so that's a, a really loaded question. And so the first thing that <laughs> the first thing that I always ask owners to consider, you know, is the baseline health of the dog. So one of the prerequisites for me um, is that your dog has to be fully musculoskeletally developed. So, you know, a Mastiff, for example, or German Shepherds, we know that a lot of their growth plates don't fuse until a certain age or a weight. Um, and so that's the first prerequisite is that I don't recommend putting young puppies or developing dogs on 
heavy resistance. There's other things you can do, but that is not one of them. Um, then it's, is your dog generally healthy? You know, you have brachiocephalic breeds who tend to have difficulty breathing. So when you increase workloads and you get their heart um, pumping and their lungs working and at baseline, they might be obese and not able to do that's something that we have to consider. And that might take most owners. We might be on a different route. Um, but as far as improving that, like every time a dog gets in a harness and is pulling weight against resistance, and I don't just mean the weight. So you could put your dog in your harness and put 10 to 15 pounds of a toe chain, but then you also have to consider what elements am I battling? What surface is my dog walking on, right? That's going to take physical, mental energy to get that weight moving. If you're in high grass or sand, that's going to feel a lot different to the dogs. Um, and then you start looking and tweaking at distances, right? Your distances, um, whether it's half of a mile, whether it's a mile, whether it's we're working on incline or decline, whether we're doing like hit style workouts. Like, and when we get into our digging deeper program, which is my second one, it's programmed in cycles where a lot of owners will start doing Tabata type work. So they're pushing, pushing, pushing with the dog for 20 seconds, backing off for 10, pushing for 20 seconds, backing off for 10. So it's increasing the dog's ability um, to, you know, sort of, I guess, the cardiovascular improvements are increasing every single time we get out, just like with humans with a workout. So it mm. looks different in that way. It's not so much speed, although there are parts of the programming, especially in the digging deeper um, the second programming where we emphasize more of the speed work foundational stuff in that first program is not so much speed rather it is learning time under tension progressive overload theory and working that into our week-to-week -week programming so when you were talking then you were talking about ages so when do you tend to start this kind of stuff with a with a dog and maybe what do you do before then if you've got a younger dog and like you want to introduce some stuff Absolutely. Good, good question. Um, generally, and again, I'm, I'm speaking very general terms because it will depend a lot on breeds and individual dogs. But most of the time we see dogs enter right around when they're a year old. Um, when you have a dog that is under that or has not actually developed and matured fully, you can do a ton of other things such as harness acclimation. Puppies are, this is a great example. You can start working on like targeting and recall work, which is more about teaching the dogs like directions. Um, and that will be very helpful if you have aspirations to compete. You're, you know, when you compete for those who are listening and are like, that's what I want to do. Um, you are unattached from your dog. So your dog has to start in 16 feet away from you and your job as the handler, you have no leash, you don't have any e-collar, you have no treats, you have nothing. And your job is to get that dog to cross the finish line 16 feet from where you are. And so attached to weight, a cart, um, you know, a ton of pounds, that's a, that's a tedious task and it's a heavy ask. So, um, you know, at that moment you rely on, you know, the relationship that you've developed. Um, and so, direction is really important. You've got to be able to guide the dog, right, left, come to me, stop. This is what I want you to touch, right? We teach that a lot, um, but it's providing direction. So you can do a ton of things like that, the, the back work to make it more successful for you. Um, you can do sound acclimation is another one. Um, it's so overlooked, but you have young puppies and teaching them confidently how to overcome sound um, is a big one. So for us, we take plastic jugs, put pennies in it, and just allow the dog to have that dragging behind them, which is a crazy sensation, but then they can hear it. And once they learn, like, this is nothing, you've built a very successful platform to then step into training. So there is a ton of things you can do. Um, and not to skip over, but we're talking about resistance training, but a lot of the, the owners and dogs who do resistance training also cross train in a way where they're doing fit pause activities, you know, a lot of other proprioceptive work that benefits when you start jumping headfirst into the training. Yeah, the age thing is really interesting because like I've kind of been battling with myself recently because I've got a young dog and I really, I think anyone with a young dog, you're just like, I just want to get started and I want to do stuff. And, <laughs> you know, and you kind of have to like fight yourself, make, make sure that you don't push the dog too far or whatever. And it seems like there is some controversy as to the right age to do certain things. Um, you know, um, so it's interesting. So you said with tw uh, 12 months, you will start a dog with resistance training. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really yeah. interesting because yeah. I know, like, for example, if I go on and I start reading about bike drawing, mm 
a lot of people will be like, no, no, you have to wait till 18 months. And, you know, people like there's, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's one of those things that's quite divisive. Like there's a lot of different opinions on it. And when you're a newbie, it's like, you don't know who to believe necessarily. Right. Yeah. And I, I will, it, you know, I think that subjectivity is always going to be there. Um, but I, the one thing that I do trust is the vets and the staff that I have worked with over the years. And it's pretty unanimous that especially when we're dealing with the amount of weight that we could potentially be dealing with for resistance training, it's always safest to make sure, um, that the bone plates and the growth plates are, are developed in order for the dog to be successful with the weights. Um, and so for me, I've always abided by that. Um, I, I don't do a ton of bike joring. I tried. My dog just bit the tires. So that was our short <laughs> stint there. Um, so they, we've always stuck to the weight pull and the resistance training. And, you know, that that advice never really steered me wrong. And for the most part, the owners, when you tell them like, hey, look, we're not going to be able to do a ton of heavy weight, but we can do three or four or five pounds. Not a big deal. Um, the owners are pretty good with that because they understand that it, something like this takes developmental time. Yeah, no, that's exactly what. I was doing, I went to a GRC meetup with Finn McCabe, who was kind of helping me out and guiding me. And he was, we did that with Onyx, just the, exactly what you said. It just yep. really light chains, just kind of more about just getting used to the experience than, yep. than anything else. Yep. And that's a great, that's a great place to start. And you can never really rush that process because it will serve you in the long run. So. So one of the things you said as well, right at the beginning, but I, I wanted to give it a minute. <laughs> <laughs> was you were talking about with your own dog that had was it did you say elbow or hip dysplasia well now she has hip dysplasia but elbow okay. dysplasia um osteoarthritis of both of her elbows so see a lot of people are nervous to try weight pull or anything like that anyway but the idea of doing it with a dog that has some kind of issue like that is even scarier um so like i think instinctually people will be like hang on a minute they really don't want to like put yes. any pressure on that whatsoever, yep. but you actually find, find it to be beneficial. I do. Um, and the, I do have to caveat this for anyone listening. I will never go against medical advice, like your vet being honest with your vet, having them as part of the, your dog's team, I think is key. Um, and so I always say for those that are starting, you know, you need to connect with your vet, make sure that they're okay to do this. And at first, a couple years back when I was saying and people were going into their vets, you would be astounded at some of these vets would have that reaction like, what? You want to pull weight? Absolutely not. And it, over the last couple of years, you've seen a dramatic shift. Um, I have dogs who have neurological issues and the owners present this you know, programming and they're like, look, I really think that we should try this with my dog to help build muscle and create stability in the hips instead of you know, allowing the muscle to shrink or atrophy. And then we have the instability and the vets now, like they're sending them all over the place. They're just coming and being like, I was told this would be great for my dog. Now we, we keep that low weight. These are dogs that not compete. They don't compete at high level, but foundational work, like our building blocks program, they're doing, you know, 10, 15 pounds. These dogs are great. And it, for whatever reason, the muscle development, the stability in the hips, the it's loaded weight bearing exercise. So it's strengthening bone, the ligaments, the tendons, the joints that surround, right? All four extremities. And in theory, that's actually making them stronger. You're starting to see less lameness. At least we do um, when the, those who follow the program. Um, so it's been a really profound shift. Um, I think when it comes to recommending this type of work with dogs who have any comorbidities, any ailments or issues that they're dealing with. Um, for Maya, it was I mean, like I said, she's 10 and a half years old and she could still in theory pull weight. I don't do that to her so much anymore, but, um, you know, at her highest to her peak, when she was probably three or four, she pulled 3,400 pounds on a cart. I mean, for a dog to have, yeah, you know, insane. that, that, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's awesome. Um, and it's, so I don't know, like I said, it, people do get nervous, but as long as you are open and honest with your vet, if you're open and honest with yourself in that you're not bogging the dog down and wait for any other reason other than the benefit of the dog, um, nine times out of 10, you're seeing great improvement for these dogs and actually less injury because we're protecting and cushioning those areas of concern. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you know, it does seem quite uh, a strange thought if you haven't considered it before. But as soon as you make the analogy to people, it totally makes sense because obviously, and and the weight lifting thing with people has kind of evolved over the last however many years because it wasn't really that long ago that 
weightlifting was like, you know, if you lifted weights, you were like, you thought of us like maybe you're a bodybuilder and you're kind of like, oh, you're trying to get massive or something like that. And, you know, like, oh, are you taking steroids or the rest of it? Right. Yeah. But but now um, now, like basically everyone in the gym lifts weights now, you know. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to see that crossing over to dogs. And I think people have just realized the benefits a bit, haven't yeah. they? You know, caught on to yeah. it and realized that also as soon as you pick up a weight, you don't instantly turn into like the Hulk. <laughs> Correct. Correct. There's a lot of fallacy around that, but uh, yes, no, it's, it's, there's so many added benefits. And, you know, again, speaking from the human world that I come from, it's, you know, we, we could have a 70 year old uh, woman who just had, you know, back surgery and they're no longer recommending that you just lay in bed for a week. It's as soon as we can, we get you up, we get you moving, you're doing strengthening work, whatever that looks like. Um, you know, and I think strengthening work comes in all forms. Swimming is a form of resistance training. So you're doing that sort of progressive work to get strong. So you're right. I mean, we've come a very long way. It's, we're really lucky to see it start to cross over. Um, Back when I started this and I was so like, I'm going to teach the world about weight pull and the benefits of it because of what I saw in my dog. I can happily say we are on the precipice of that and things are starting to shift. So it's been, it's been a wonderful journey to watch that transpire. And it's not just local to weight pull competitors anymore. Like I said, it's hitting every pocket of dog owners and sport, um, which is the whole reason why I continued to do what I did. So. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've never had to have that conversation with my vet, but I feel like that would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that they would know about it so much, you know. But I guess having people like you out there, you can you can kind of show them something, and also yep. you can show them something. You know, again, you know, talking about like stereotypes, you know, a lot of people when they think about weight pool, I mean, for example, like even like slap mills and stuff like that, when people see those, they associate them with dog fighting um, yeah. or spring pole is really like the amount of people that will be like, oh, he was, you know, the staffy was hanging from a tree. He's he's training it for dog fighting or whatever. Um, so to show them to be able to show that like material that is clearly not that. I think is probably extremely helpful for kind of communicating what it is you're trying to achieve. Oh, yes. And I've, you know, I've done my fair share of uh, mentoring along that line where when, you know, I've had several owners just get started and they're so exuberant, so excited, just like passionate about resistance training. And it takes one bad comment or one bad egg to kind of ruin that for a lot of these owners. I had one woman who was taking her dog, um, doing some drag work, resistance work, you know, out in a field. And she had somebody drive by and just yell at her, like, you know, quit fighting your dog. And so it, it takes a, you know, it takes some sort of debriefing for those owners when they come to me and they're like, how, how should I handle this? How do I educate um, against this stereotype that's, you know, kind of followed this work for, for years. Um, and it's all about education and that's it. So I think another strength of everybody joining in and doing resistance training, whatever that looks like, is just we're continuing to educate dog owners, the general public. Um, and I, I don't hear about it so much anymore. So I think those that are continuing to do resistance work are now realizing like their strength and number, the more of us that do this and the more we can push education, um, we start to see and hear less of that comment being made. Yeah. I, yeah. So, I mean, I think, there's even an analogy to like, uh, like muzzles here. Like, you know, a lot of people have been trying to normalize wearing a muzzle, you know, obviously there is still some people that see that as a really negative thing, but there has been a real push for just trying to make that not come with such a taboo. And I guess it's, it's kind of similar here. Like how frequently have you experienced that? Is that something that has come up a lot? Also, when you do this kind of work, do you tend to, do you tend to like deliberately avoid that and go places that are really quiet or you're just not really that fussed? So I have actually had that comment said to me very early on. Um, and it was one of those like, moments that I had to really take in and absorb that comment, like in its deepest, because I had to recognize that, you know, when I was working with Maya and we were doing, we were not following this program that I have developed. So it was like, I had her strapped to a tire and she was probably, I don't know, a year and a half old. And I'm like dragging, I'm on the ground in front of her. I'm like, come on, you can do it. And she's pulling this tire to me. And I had this older gentleman, um, walk right up behind me. And he said to me, he goes, Michael Vick, 
fought his dogs the way that you're teaching your dogs. And I was just like, wow. Like I had, I was so stunned by that comment and it was such an eye opener for me. And I didn't really have, you know, a place or a community to talk about it. It was just, I was one of the only people in my area doing this. And it was, I had to learn how to react to that, but also be aware that I do have a, I have a pit bull and I am doing some of the very things that are known to make these dogs more athletic, like resistance training makes them more athletic. That's why we still do it. But we needed to shift away from just because I'm doing this does not mean I'm doing fighting. Um, and so it took a lot of work for me, both inner inner work myself to recognize like, yeah, I, I mean, this, these comments come with the territory. Um, again, we're not seeing that as much anymore, but now that we're starting to, again, spread it to border collies and golden retrievers and uh, pugs and Dobermans and German shepherds, you're start, you're not hearing it as much, but I think when it first really, really kicked off, you know, five, six years ago, we were still hearing it because of the breed of dog, at least me, um, the breed of dogs that I chose to own. And, um, you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's it's kind of led me to where I am. And um, we're lucky now, at least the CRT community has people that they can bounce things like, hey, I got this comment. It ruffled my feathers. But you know what? I come here and I talk about it with you guys and I know that I'm doing the right thing. So, yeah, no, I mean, I uh, I think I've had similar experiences with different things. And, you know, sometimes it's really tempting to or it's really difficult not to get defensive when you get a comment like that yes. and yes. say, you know, just go off or whatever. But sometimes people are just abrasive and actually they maybe if you actually try and have a conversation, some people you can actually have a conversation with and you can kind of make them realize that, you know, it's not what they thought it was and other people just don't want to hear it. <laughs> Correct. Correct. You can't force the information down their throat, but um, for those that are willing to listen, you know, and Facebook is good for a lot of things, but the one thing I found that it's not good for is having this conversation. So I've, you know, I've had people when I've posted like weight pull trial pictures of Maya, you know, and you can see like, in my eyes, I see the beauty of her and the strength and her willingness and determination and all of that. But people on the other end of the computer sometimes don't see that. And so Facebook tends to be a hard, I usually tell students, I'm like, you don't want to have those conversations on an online platform if you can help it, because that person on the other end is not always reciprocal to your thoughts and ideas and you can't change their minds. Um, but, you know, we kind of let the results speak and do that for us. And we've been, like I said, we've been seeing dogs just improved health, improved bonding and being being successful in the other avenues of their life because of this. So that's what I let speak. I, I kind of just sometimes have just disengaged from those who just don't want to hear and be educated. Yeah, it is interesting because I like, like on your Instagram, you do post a lot of like videos and pictures and stuff of you doing drag work. Um, yeah. But I I do know some people that do do it that you would never see it on any of their social media. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to ask them. I don't know if that's a deliberate decision or not. Um, because you're right. You know, sometimes I'll just be scrolling through TikTok or something and I'll see a dog doing some kind of working thing. And you will always get like a couple of people that will post negative comments. Um, but I think it just comes from a place of ignorance. You know, I, I don't really right. get... That doesn't really get me so worked up. But then again, it's not my video. <laughs> yeah, no. And to, and to those, you know, um, to those who maybe don't post their, their sessions or when they're out doing the resistance work with their dogs, you know, I've had some who, I think I mentioned it earlier in the podcast where someone had reached out to me and he said, you know, I just want to thank you for this program and, and what you've put together because without this, yes, my dog is stronger. Yes. My dog is, you know, mentally clearer and all of these things. But what he has found is that it is so it's truly like meditation where he can disengage from his phone. He can go out in the morning and just be present with his dog while doing this. And he's found a deeper appreciation for his ability to put in the work. Like, when it, when it push comes to shove and when you take all this, your dog does this truly because they're doing it for you. And that's the relationship throughout this whole pro programming that we foster. I don't train with treats. I don't recommend training with treats. I don't put prong, e-collar, nothing. You are attached to your dog. Eventually that attachment comes off, but you through programming and training and the day-to-day -day work have developed such a rapport and relationship and advocacy with your dog that they truly do this out of full love for you. And you won't believe me until you see it. 
But like I said, you know, for those who choose not to post their sessions on social media, I see you and I hear you because I have some that do that too. But what they have found is that it's more of an, it's their time to really reflect and be present with the dog. Um, and for that, they're grateful, um, which is again, a byproduct. I never for, I never saw that one coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess also there's the love of the activity, right? Like I'm trying to think of an example, but there's so many working dogs that you don't like, maybe you, maybe this is different with weight pool. Because uh, I know you kind of have to deal with like conflicts of motivation and stuff like that. But, you know, with a lot of sports and stuff like that, you might start off using a lot of motivational tools and, you know, like food, toys, all the rest of it. Um, but very like, for example, a good example is we do a lot of man trailing. You know, when you start off doing rewards, rewarding the dog with food and stuff yep. like that. Yep. But very quickly, the dog understands the game. And oftentimes they'll actually... And I think a lot of people wouldn't believe this until they start doing it. They actually will, will stop taking the food because they're just so like driven yes. by the activity that yes. they don't even want the food. They just want to go again. You yep. know? Yes. Yep. <laughs> no, that's, that's a wonderful example. And that's, that's actually what we see. Like when they're first starting out, I usually get the owner going, my dog was all over the place running from tree to tree. Cause we, I recommend you do your sessions outside. Like, why wouldn't you this, the smells and the sounds and things are so much more intriguing when they're learning this new activity. I use them as a benefit. I'm like, yeah, go on a trail out in the woods. If you're comfortable, go find a nice flat, you know, dirt road. And the dog naturally puts their head down, which is the position I want the dog's head in. Right. Um, then they start leaning forward into the harness, which serves them as they develop. Right. And they start just moving with whatever scent is there, a rabbit, a dog, the grass, it doesn't matter. But the first couple of weeks are always just about building, making this fun and making those external motivators, making them a good thing for you. But eventually you're right. They get so used to, ah, oh, she's putting me in the harness again. We're going to do this thing. And they get so used to it that you don't need treats. You know, I'm on other things that I work on with my dog. I'm the first one to pull out different motivators. I've done tug work. I've done, you know, of like course. balls, yeah. food, doesn't matter. But this, we have just found there's, it's, it's extra and you don't need it because it's, you have all you need right there, which is another awesome thing that like, there's really not a lot of equipment that you need to purchase. It shows, it's super easy. It shows how reinforcing the activity is for the dog. Yeah. You know, yep. that they would, they would do it without any, they, like the activity is just self-reinforcing. I think that's, that's always really cool. You know, like, I, like I'm sure that, you know, some people have exceptions to this, but like, I feel, I feel like, you know, when you're doing obedience and stuff like that, like the dog doesn't have the same level of enjoyment of it, yeah. you know, like they can enjoy right. it because it leads to a reward versus a lot of the like games you can play and stuff like that. Um, stuff that involves work. Oftentimes the dogs just love it so much. So, so how often do you tend to do this then Ashley? So for the people who sign up and follow the programming, um, I recommend two to three times a week. And the difference between someone who does it two to three times a week depends um, heavily on their schedule, the dog's health. You know, what are they trying to get out of it? Most people tend to do three times a week when they're starting. Um, as you get into the later, and if you definitely have aspirations to compete, you're looking at probably three times a week to do that. When you're not doing your sessions, I highly, highly recommend other activities. So, you know, if you're an agility dog, then you have your certain days of the week where you focus on agility. So this sort of just dovetails right into and kind of goes along with whatever you're doing full time with your dog. Um, but my recommendation is generally two to three times a week where we start to see actual benefits from the training. Does this affect the dog's nutritional needs? Do you find that you have to feed them more or anything like that? Yeah. Yep. So it's that's just one of the top questions that I get usually around, like, as most people start to finish the building blocks program, again, very basic entry level programming, but most dogs will start to increase their appetite because their metabolic needs are increasing. Um, and so if you're, if you feed raw, right, you might have to increase your protein. Um, if you're feeding kibble, you may have to go up, you know, half a cup or whatever. I don't dictate and tell people you need to, but I definitely say you need to be mindful of it because this is the demand it's putting on the dog's body. So do not be surprised if you start to see them lean out the muscle develop, right. And they're going to need more nutritional needs. So yes, absolutely. You know, one thing that's kind of like in the pet dog world, sometimes people say, you know, um, don't exercise your dog too much because then you're going to 
forever it be increasing the dog's like capacity to keep going you know and you're kind of building an athlete and that could be a bit of a double-edged sword if you just want a nice pet dog you don't want to have to walk them three hours a day right is that something that you need to worry about with this like or can this be like a really helpful tool for like i'm I'm sorry i was gonna rant a little bit here (laughs) going down down a rabbit hole because like for me um I'm like a recent convert to like flirt poles, to be honest. I just never really used them, never really got around to using them for the longest time. And uh, recently I started using them maybe over the last six months or so. And I've loved it. Like like I'm fully converted now. And what (laughs) I really like about the flirt pole is if I need to tire my dog out quickly, I can do it like like quickly you know like for example like if i haven't really done much with her during the day but like i really need to do a meeting or something then i can take like 10 minutes or whatever and just get her on the flirt pole and tire her out very quickly in what would have otherwise taken me a lot longer to tire her out in a different way um so i'm just curious can you do that with uh with like drag work and stuff like that or do you have to be a bit careful about building the athlete are you gonna have you know is that how what's your approach to that yeah so um the way that i recommend our program but right, you can definitely i think again another byproduct of doing this work is that it, it does physically tire the dog out like a normal walk without weight i might be gone 40 minutes or so to get my dog walked 40 minutes to an hour but i could do a 20 minute session when i have resistance weight added and they're equally as fulfilled and tired, um, because it was as a fraction of the time, but it was more mental and physical work. Um, now could I do that five days a week? Right. And then worry about, because I love it and I get over enthusiastic and I want to do all these sessions. Will I build a dog who has the capacity to handle more? Yes. But you also do not give the dog a chance to recover and recovery is arguably where all of the muscle repairing and the building, right? The, the strengthening of the ligaments, that's when it happens. So I purposefully tell people no more than three sessions a week, because the the recovery is equally as important than the work. And so you have to really dedicate time to, you know, the (laughs) sessions, um, the sessions are structured so that you don't just put a cold dog. So a dog just comes out of the crate in your car You put them on a field and you throw the harness on and you just go. You really need to spend time warming them up, getting the muscles that are going to be used activated. So that takes quite a bit of time, 15, 20 minutes to do that if you do it properly. Then you actually have your session. Could last anywhere from a half hour, 30, 40 minutes, depending on where we're at in the programming. And then you have your cool down period and your like liberty period, if you will, and your massage, right? Um, All of that, the rub down is included in that. So to me, it's a comprehensive approach. You've got to have all three components, but the days where you're not doing resistance are truly dedicated in my book to the active recovery or true rest days, allowing that. So you could, somebody who's not following programming or guidance could do five days a week, but eventually what's going to happen is injury and overuse because you're not allowing the dog to recover. So I've not seen somebody not follow that advice once given like the information on what I just like what I just told you. So I don't think I've seen somebody um, do it that extreme. Yeah, that is really interesting. Because like, I know, with cardio training, there's kind of two schools of thought, isn't there? Like in people where like some people would do the hit. And like, maybe you do less, but you're like, going like full pelt. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the versus some people I can't remember what the technical term for it is. I haven't really been into fitness for a long That's time. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> but like, uh, what's it called? The low state or low uh, intensity where people are just kind of like you're on the bike and you're maybe you're on the, the bike for like, you know, an hour and you're watching television and it's really not like yeah. intensive. Yeah. I, I don't know the the actual name for it, but when you're saying it, it, it almost seems like more of like what I tell people to do for active recovery, where it's just, you're trying to activate the body's system to sort of flush out the lactic acid that builds up after you're using your muscles. And so our dogs, I guess they can't speak English. We have no idea. So when they're sore from doing a workout, if you will, the day before, you're going to be have to have to be extra in tune with, you know, how are they moving today? You know, what are they, are they sluggish? Are they slow? Is this a day where I just go on a walk? I don't necessarily need to do a hit workout, meaning I'm throwing the ball in the backyard 50 times to get their heart rate up. You know, it just needs to be that steady stream, just getting blood flowing that activates the, the lymphatic system to get promote drainage 
of that lactic acid. So that's what I mean by like active recovery. Um, and that's built in, that's built into the programming so that people don't skimp on it. Yeah. Cause I can imagine as a, like as a pet dog trainer, one challenge that we oftentimes come across is probably the most common problem is people getting dogs that are just not really like suiting of their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And maybe they go out and they get a working line dog or they get like a really high energy dog and they just don't have the time to commit to the dog. And it's like really frustrating sometimes because the dog's not getting what they need and the person's like unable to provide it essentially. Uh, Maybe they don't want to rehome the dog. So you just end up in this kind of like catch 22 of like, well, you're not providing the dog what they need. So their, their behavior is not as you want it to be but you can't provide the dog what it needs so it's like you know this just horrible (laughs) like uh situation to be in i imagine that this is a really good solution or like part of the puzzle for these people because they can um give the dog a job that doesn't mean that they have to go you know they don't have to go on a bike and do bike drawing for like an hour and a half or whatever you know like i just it seems like a little bit more like once you get over the like taboo, if you want to call it that, of, of like weight pool, like it seems like it's actually a lot more like easier to to like accomplish for the people. You know, yeah. it's super easily accessible. The you can find the tow chain that we use for resistance. You can find that at Lowe's, Home Depot, any hardware store. Um, the harness is probably the most expensive part, depending on the size of your dog, that can average anywhere from 60 to a hundred us dollars, right? I don't know other makers in different countries, you know, I don't know what they charge, but that's the most expensive. And those harnesses are so durable. Um, I still have like all 12 of mine in my garage, you know, and, and my dogs are 10 and a half and they're all, you could be machine washable. Um, so there's just, that's the most expensive part as far as going outside for your session on a, a nice paved trail right? Uh, a football field, a soccer field, a, I mean, your backyard in some instances, depending on what you're doing. Um, and that's the beauty of a program. You know, I think some people in different schools of thought with this is like, I don't need a program. I know what I'm doing. And somebody who is, has done this for years, like myself, I probably don't necessarily need to follow step by step, but every day I know what I'm doing. I have an idea, but for those who are just entering, it's like, I take all the guesswork out of it for you. So all you have to do is this and you'll, you'll be fine. So the average dog owner who is pretty um, novice in this arena, you don't have to do much, but dedicate, you know, if you can't give your dog an hour of your time, you know, three, four times a week, maybe. Um, But so this really is easily accessible. And it's, you know, one of the things I recommend even to dogs who are coming in from shelters, Um, a lot of the shelter owners or workers, you know, have reached out to me, like, could I do this for the shelter dogs? Like, yeah, if you only have 30 minutes to spend with this dog, this is a perfect thing to do. So, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea for rescue centers for sure. Yeah. I hadn't really even considered that. So let's talk a little bit about the harness thing though. Um, so, uh, so, you know, if you're just starting out, you're just getting started is, I guess that's a little bit of a barrier, isn't it? Because that's probably going to put off a lot of people where in terms of like, hey, I've not even tried it yet. I don't even know if my dog likes it. And now I have to go and try and like buy this custom harness. Like, you know, and and also I think I heard you talk about the delivery times can be like quite long. That's that might be the biggest barrier to entry. Right. Or like, is, is there something, is there a way that you can kind of get around that and just see if the dog, you know, like, is there any way that you can kind of just try it without having to do the custom or is it like, no, hundred percent, you need to do the custom and yep commit. Um, so the custom harness is a barrier, um, you know, and it's the one hurdle that we have to constantly try and get ahead of it. You know, for anyone listening, who's like a great seamstress, I'm telling you, this is your calling. You could make a killing, uh, with being able to design these, but a custom harness, it really ensures the, the safety of the dog and, and making sure that it's unique and fit properly really helps, um, with any potential injury. So that's the first thing I'll never not advocate for. If you're going to do this long-term and you really enjoy this, your dog really enjoys this. You could see yourself doing it. You need to invest in that. Even though the wait times can be extensive, maybe a couple months, depending on which harness maker you reach out to, um, it's worth it. Uh, as far as if you just want to try it, I know, um, you know, my, my mindset has shifted a little bit because I think that committing to this work, meaning 
if you're going to get a harness and you're going to do this with your dog, you need to have a harness of your own. Um, some clubs, some organizations have a surplus of harnesses that they've collected that fit various dogs. Um, and that's a great way to just try it. You know, you can go to a club practice or go to a dog meetup and say, Hey, I want to see if Rover can do this. And if he even likes it, um, and just throw on the harness and get a feel for, Oh, he's deathly afraid of this harness. And I don't want to try this or he's kind of into this. Um, so I think that's the first thing you can do to get around, like before I spend all this money. Um, just trying that, seeing if the club or anyone in your area has one you could borrow. Um, if you find yourself going, I really want to do this. It's super important though, in my eyes to be committed. And you, what I don't like to see is the dog owner showing up and borrowing the harness week to week, because that tells me one of two things, the dog is not getting this exercise and this work outside of these club practices. So that could be potentially harmful to the dog. If you're only doing the drag work one day a week, when you show up to club, you're not really helping strengthen, you're not building cardiovascular endurance, right? So to me, I always recommend having a custom-made harness. Um, the harness makers that I love, I don't know, you know, again, different areas of the world, and I've connected with so many different ones, um, but Brown Dog Designs, Missy is an, a tried and true old school harness maker, makes some of the best around her wait times are pretty long, but you will never be disappointed in the gear that you get. She can make any wild, colorful design come to life, um, but you can find her on Facebook, Brown Dog Designs, um, but she's my go-to. She's who I recommend. I've got a couple others, but um, like I said, depending on where you are in the world, there's uh, so many out there. Yeah. As, as like, I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are pet dog trainers how can we kind of incorporate it into what we do? You know, is there, and like you talk about clubs, is there an ability, like for example, how many dog trainers run agility classes or they run, you know, whatever kind of classes? Is there a way of doing like, uh, like a class version of this? Or is there a way of incorporating this, this into one-to-one -one training? Like how would you kind of encourage people to do that? Yeah, so you can do um, a ton of different things. When I ran my weight pull club, I would have a dedicated time in the space um, and with the you know, owner of the facility that I was working with. And he said, this is your weight pull club. And that was all the direction he gave me. So I had an hour and a half and I had dogs who had bite histories, which is a, actually a decent thing, a sport for these dogs who have bite histories, aggression, who are dog reactive, because this sport generally is one-on-one. -on -one. You're not having other dogs running in circles, right? Like it's just this dog. Um, and so that's, you know, sometimes a, a helpful way to pull in like, your dog can totally do this, even if they have a bite history, because it's as long as they're not biting you, nobody else needs to touch them. It's just you and the dog. Um, but I would, the way that you can incorporate this, I feel like the, the proper way is to do like um, drag classes. So it's not about necessarily getting the dog on a harness and a cart right away, because that can be detrimental to an underdeveloped dog who's had no experience. And you just bring them in and put them on a cart that can weigh much more than they're used to. Some dogs uh, will kind of go against everything I'm saying. They'll just take to it and be able to pull that no problem, not looking back. But you have other dogs who people get a little bit um, quick with it and they put the dog right on a cart and then the dog is panicked because they have a cart behind them coming, you know, a wheel to implement is coming down, racing as fast as they're running. They have no, um, I don't want to say structure, but they're, they don't have any obedience. They don't know what they're doing. So I actually like to do like pack walks with resistance work, I think that's a great way to start so people can see the importance of, oh, the drag work and the resistance work come first. It comes first before I put them on a wheeled implement or a sled and put weight to it. So that is what I would recommend as being like, oh, I really like yeah, that. Idea. Like this, like <laughs> we're going to do like a Saturday. We're all going to meet up and do like a pack walk, but you know, have your harnesses. Now, the barrier is that the person hosting may not have enough harnesses. So if you're a club member, you have, you know, facility and you're trying to, um, if you want to offer this to clients, what I would recommend is getting in touch with a harness maker now, understanding that it's going to be a while before you get seven or eight custom harnesses. But I would start that conversation as soon as you thought you would be interested. But that's what I would recommend is doing that um, first. Yeah, I guess if you're wanting to do like a drag class, then you need to do like, you would need to just, you just like i guess maybe the harness maker will be able to give you some instruction on that but like yes. you probably would just have to kind of guess at terms of like general sizes or you know getting yep. a various variety of sizes so that you can kind of generally give people a starting place 
Yes, the harness and the harness fit is like a science to those people. Um, it generally goes by weight, you know, but we know that 50 or 60 pound dogs look different. You can have a dog golden retriever that's 60 pounds, but then my American bully, you know, short and stocky bowling ball looks very different than a 60 pound lab mix. So the, the harness makers generally go by weight. Um, but if if it were me, I would have harnesses that are fit and longer for shepherds or any dog that has that very elongated gait. Um, a little helpful you know, tip for anyone looking at harnesses, one of the things that we really focus on and emphasize is making sure the spreader bar, the bar that hangs below the dog's hocks, just to make sure that that never hits the back of their legs when they're in full extension. Um, because eventually over time, the dog will learn that I need to shorten my stride and that can be very detrimental to the muscles. So you, that's the one thing we say is that if it's at all impeding that movement, it's the wrong size, you need one that's bigger. Yeah, so. I think that's pretty universal as well. Like, you know, I think with the uh, popularization of harnesses over the last 10 years or so, people are getting really like uh aware of like how important the fits are on things like that so yeah. yeah that's that's really interesting and i've heard people say the same about treadmills right yes you know and and not yeah. using one that's too small and all, all the rest of it so uh you've made kind of reference to your programs and stuff like that how where can people get started because this is such a daunting thing for people if you you know, you're really worried about getting it wrong and you don't really know where to start. Um, and to be honest, I've looked online and I found it hard to find resources. Um, yep. So, yeah, tell us more. Of course. Yeah. So if you're if you're looking just to get in contact with myself um, and figure out like what it is that CRT is, you want some basic. I have a ton of blogs and not that anyone reads blogs anymore, but a lot of information. You can just go to my general website, www.canineresistancetraining.com. When you log on, there is a tab at the top of the website um, that will take you to like what we offer is what it's called. And there's an online education tab. Once you click the online education, right, I've created platforms of classes that are module based. You can work through it at your own pace. It has usually PowerPoints. So for visuals, along with recordings of myself going through everything, it lays out the program for you. There are some quizzes in there because I am an educator by background. And there are some things that are overemphasized that are really important that you understand. Um, there's some videos demonstrating certain techniques and things that we're going to use in the programming. Um, and you can buy whatever program fits your needs. Most people start with the building blocks, which is the entry level foundation once they get through that, then they move on to the others. Um, but that's what I would recommend. Like if you're looking to get started, the online education is always my recommendation because you have access to that for a whole year. Um, so you can go back, revisit it, um, and then join the private CRT group. Cause yeah. that's where all the clients that are using it, all the coaches, they ask questions, post videos, get people's feedback. It's very engaging. So we do a really good job of supporting one another. So is that group just for people that are doing the program? Yep. Yeah, yep. Okay. It's just, oh, yeah. I mean, I would say if you're interested too, there's some member questions that people answer. And if they leave them blank, I, I tend to think you're not super interested. Um, but if you are like, just, you can usually just say in the questions, like, I really want to learn more about this. So I want to join, but for the most part, it's everyone who has done it at some point or is still doing it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, this is a very interesting area. I think a lot of people are going to have their eyes open by this for sure, because yeah. I certainly did when I started coming across it. And, you know, as I was saying to Jay Jack, when I had him on the podcast, like, I think for me, I think for a lot of people, the world of dog fitness for the longest time has just been proprioception. You know, that's all that we've seen, you know, and all we've kind of been exposed to is like, you know, the wobble boards and all the rest of it. And, and obviously there is a place for that. Um, but no one, I, until I kind of, kind of discovered like this little circle, <laughs> you know, it, I really hadn't heard of this stuff and it does just make total sense when you, when you actually kind of think about it. Um, so I'm really excited about it and I'm really excited about it becoming a little bit more mainstream. And I, I think there's a lot of potential there for sure. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate, like I said, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about, you know, something that I'm super passionate about. And just like you, I hope that every conversation like this opens more eyes and people can start to see that this is out there for them. Um, however it fits, you know, into their dog world and regimen. Um, but it is there and you'll find some benefit, uh, whatever that benefit may be, or there might be some that you just uncover that I'm unaware of. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on and I really appreciate it. And I, 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 yeah. 
I'm I'm excited about it. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. For me, I can't wait to get started on some of this stuff with Onyx. Honestly, this uh, all of the resistance training stuff, really interesting to me. So if you enjoyed it, don't forget to share it with a friend or leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to it on because that really helps us out too. And before we go, you should also check out N2N Canine Mills. That's our podcast sponsor. They create carpet mills. They create slap mills. Fantastic for increasing your dog's fitness. And as a podcast listener, you can use the code NB10. Plus, they have a whole bunch of sales on right now because it's the end of the, end of the year. So don't forget to check them out. That's N2NK9Mills are on Instagram. They have a website. Fantastic. See you in the next episode.